How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome back to Michael Easley in Context. You're listening to Episode 5 of A Living Hope in Hopeless Times, an expository look at First Peter. In this episode, Michael teaches from First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. I hope you had a chance to listen to our special edition episode released last week with Johnny Erickson Tata. If you haven't, can't encourage you enough to go back and take a listen when you have a chance. There is also a free devotional written by Michael that is attached to that show and we'll include it in the show notes of this episode as well. But Michael wrote a five-day devotional called Comforted by God about finding hope amidst suffering. And it's yours for free if you just go to our website and submit your email address. Now, let's go ahead and listen to Michael's teaching on 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. 1 Peter is a letter that the apostle wrote primarily to a suffering, dispersed group. They are facing persecution. They live in a land that is not their home. They are undoubtedly discouraged. They are fearful, they're curious, they're upset about what's happened in their experience, this diaspora. And so God's Spirit moves the Apostle Peter to put pen to parchment, and he writes a letter to them to encourage them, even though they're suffering for the sake of the gospel. Last time we looked at God saving us to a living hope. And uh, even as I was reviewing in the past days, it reminds me of how often uh, the term I use, you perhaps heard me say this, we get to a horizontal Christianity view of life. What Jesus does for me, what salvation does for me, what my life, my passions, my dreams. And that's important. I'm not negating it. But uh, Peter reminds us we're saved to something. We're saved to a living hope. Not just to a better life or better marriage or fill in the blank, but we're saved to this living hope that is future, it's eternal, it's imperishable, and it's an inheritance that is guaranteed as part of the salvation. Now, perhaps you are like me. Uh, I love to hear a person's story of how they came to Christ. Some churches had uh, testimony nights they would have on a special evening. Uh, The church I attended in college on Sunday nights was a very informal service, and we would often have college students that had come to Christ through the ministry tell their story. The pastor would interview them. Whenever they had baptisms, it was a full-out interview. It wasn't this, you know, dunking machine of 15 people. It was, let's hear your story, and it was a conversation. When you heard those stories, it just I don't know about you, but it grabs a part of me that always turns on the faucets and I cry. To hear how a person came to Christ when they moved from death to life, from disbelief to belief, from confusion to clarity, it's just, wow. Peter's going to talk about this concept of salvation here in a unique way, especially for this apostle. But it, it brings to mind, just as sort of a, a landing base, when we think about salvation, there are a lot of improper terms we use when we talk about salvation. It's Christianese. We kind of give people latitude. We know what it means, but it's not very accurate. Walk an aisle, pray a prayer, give your heart to Jesus, ask Jesus into your heart, give your life to God, surrender over to him. On and on we go with these cliches. Even the phrase personal relationship with Christ, they can all be good, but they're nuanced just a little bit off center, especially when you tell a child to ask Jesus into his heart, her heart. If there are concrete, abstract level, and they're five or four, and they hear that, that means Jesus shrinks down, crawls into their chest cavity, opens a little door, sits on a chair, closes the door in their heart. So when you tell a child to ask Jesus into his or her heart, on the one hand, it's simple language, but are we trying to repair something that doesn't need repairing? It's trust in Christ, it's belief in him, it's putting your faith in him to do for you what you, what I cannot do for ourselves. 
There's all kinds of sequences that people organize and orchestrate, but if you look at Christ's words in the Gospels, at the way Paul explains salvation in, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for example, 8, 9, 10, it's a, it's a matter of faith, of embracing 1 Corinthians 15, of trusting in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He lived, he died, he was buried. On my behalf, in my place, instead of me, he paid for your sins and mine. That's embracing by faith, by trust, by belief in him to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Walking out, pray a prayer, uh, give your life to Jesus. All those things are nomenclature, and some of them are the means by which we embrace or appropriate it, but they can be confusing. And here's the caution. As we hand it to the next generation, it gets more muddled. We might like the phrase, I do, a personal relationship with Christ, but that can be muddled. He's not your buddy. He's not your friend in the way we talk about it. Yes, he calls us friends, but I can't find any stitch of scripture that says, I get to call him my friend. It says he calls you his friend. He's God. So the nomenclature can get watered down as we hand the information over. The other thing just to say before we look at this passage is the point in time conversion salvation versus sanctification. And again, most of us, this is review, we know these things, but there was a place, a point in time, when you walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, said things, when you put your trust in Christ and Christ alone, you nailed it down, you know you did it, you were in third grade, you were at a VBS, you were at a church camp, a friend in college shared uh, the gospel with you, maybe someone from the Navigators or Crusade or InterVarsity, someone, wow, the lights went on. That was the point in time when you came to Christ. You knew you were a sinner. You knew you were forgiven. You had perhaps emotions or intellectual stimulation. Wow, this is mind-boggling. That's the, I call it the benchmark. And if you climb mountains in Colorado that are over 14,000, you will find a benchmark at the top of those mountains where the United States Geological Survey uh, went up there years ago. They're, they're finding now with GPS that all the data is wrong. But in those days, uh, they said Long's Peak was 14,256 feet uh, tall. And they put this massive benchmark in. They chiseled it in the top of that granite. It's still there today from 1950, whatever it was. That's the benchmark of your salvation. The day you trusted Christ, you know that you put your trust in him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Now, sanctification is the process thereafter. So we're growing in Christ, we're growing in grace, we're growing by faith, and it's not just a, unfortunately, it's not just a perfect, you know, 45 degree trajectory. It is an up and down experience. We're sinful, we're lazy, we're apathetic. We grow quickly, we wilt quickly, and the, the point is the long term, it's like stocks, long term. We want long term consistent growth. That's what maturity is, right? I often wonder, can we hurry up our sanctification? I don't know the answer to that, but I do think we can thwart it. We can slow it down. We can drag our feet a little bit. So the point in time salvation, the progressive growth sanctification, just as kind of a landing on terms. I want you, I want to be clear about what the Bible says about trusting Christ, what the Bible says salvation is, what the Bible says growth is, not the horizontal Christianity uh, culture that we can get pulled into so easily because it is part of the way we talk. Well, this passage is, has a, as short as it is, there are a number of themes that Peter draws out. Let me read the passage and then I'm going to unpack it with three primary hooks. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, the way we count, verses 3, verses 10, 11, and 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. And these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. First is the prophetic history. Let's first think about prophetic history in verse 10. Note the prophet's careful search. Now, like a lot of ideas and words we know about the Bible, let's just take a little bit of a sidebar and talk about who a prophet is and what a prophet did. Uh, Cook called them agents engaged in the ministry of redemption. Prophets from the beginning, evangelists in the fullness of time. Now, a prophet was a person who was called by God. They were not self-appointed. They didn't say, oh, I think I'm going to grow up and be a prophet one day. 
This is something that interrupted their life. Uh, five quick points about that. God chose them. They were often unwilling or downright resistant. God chose them. They were often unwilling, sometimes resistant. Secondly, some were more faithful than others. Some were more ready to carry out God's instructions. Others had a dialogue with them. Others resisted. Others had a problem with it. But eventually, they are going to follow him. Thirdly, almost all of them were maligned, abused, ignored. Some uh, suffered horrific fates. In fact, we're going to look at Hebrews 11 in just a moment. Fourth, at the root, they were faithful people. Even disobedient Jonah, who goes left when he's supposed to go right, in the end, after God sort of you know, grabs him by the collar metaphorically, and he goes finally to Nineveh and does what he was sent to do, and Nineveh repents, and he goes off. And it's a classic story of the greatest success story in the Bible, and the guy, as a result, is clinically depressed. But he obeyed God. So even in there, he was, in that he was faithful. And then in some, God is choosing them to speak to Israel's leaders, to other nations. And there's two aspects of that we'll talk about in a minute. So they're chosen by God, they're unwilling, they're resistant, they're generally faithful, some are disobedient, some do better than others. At the end of the story, they all are doing what God told them to do. Now, if you turn back in your Bible a few pages to Hebrews 11, one of these passages that every time you go through it, it, it strikes me at least how much we forget about our, what we call salvation history. Chapter 11 is known as the hall of faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for with the conviction of things not seen, for by it, by faith, the men of old gained approval, Hebrews 11, verse 3. And then we have this by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. You precept and BSFer and Bible study folks see this very quickly. Verse 3, by faith we understand. Verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God. Verse 5, by faith Enoch. Verse 6 is one of the big points of the passage. Without faith it's impossible to please him. And then we go by faith, Noah, verse 7, on and on and on. Now, when you get over to verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them, having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. And if I'm not mistaken, some who know Shakespeare a lot better than I do. That was where he used the line, undiscovered country, where he was talking about this, this future kingdom of God that was out there. Um, he goes on then, by faith Abraham, and then by faith Isaac. And then he's going to read uh, later on, if we go down to verse uh, 32, what more shall I say? Time will fail me if I speak of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Sam. All, by faith they conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, on and on it goes. And then we come down to verse 32. Six. Others experienced mocking, scourgings, yes, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. I love this. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Peter is very quickly explaining that as to the salvation, the prophets of old prophesied about this. And we need to understand the history. And remember, they're a dispersed, suffering, discouraged group of people that this letter is circulating around. So he's reminding them, let's go back to the beginning and think about those prophets and the message that they brought to us. It's an interesting phrase that they made careful search. Peter uses two verbal expressions that are unusual, searches and inquiries. One German scholar says they were like miners engaged in digging for precious metal. What are they searching? What are they inquiring about? Well, obviously, a lot of this isn't recorded yet. So oral tradition from other prophets is what they depended on, and the stories were told it's not uncommon in many rabbinic sects and many of the Orthodox Jewish cultures. This is memorized, and this oral tradition was handed down to them. Well, they're searching, they're inquiring, they're finding out. What are they looking for? This goes back to, we talked about who they are, what are they doing? Two words you will hear very simply, foretelling and forthtelling. A prophet could foretell or forthtell. 
Not fortune tell, but he could foretell or foretell. To foretell is basically to predict the future. To foretell is to speak a message to someone, a divine message, in this case, that God gave the prophet to share. So when he speaks to Moses and gives them the law, any name of the, any prophet you can think of, both major and minor in your Old Testament, when he talks to Jeremiah, when he speaks to Isaiah, he's foretelling, he's giving them information, divine communication, that they then to communicate to a people group, typically the Jew, sometimes to other nations around them, uh, and then of course the the message continues to spread. These weren't Nostradamus kinds of prophecies. They weren't write a whole bunch of things down and see if one comes true. This was a divine word from God given to a human vessel. Now, if you go back and think about it, it's quite fascinating to me that in the beginning, God was talking to Adam in the garden. He talks to Moses. He talks from the mountain. And remember, it freaks people out. And they go, basically, no, 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 no. We don't want to hear him. That's in the Greek, Hebrew. Uh, <laughs> You talk to him and relate to us what he said because it's too terrifying to hear his voice. And pretty much from then on, we go silent. There's a few exceptions, and those are stories in and of themselves. But we're not going to hear this incredible noise again until we have the person of Jesus Christ on the scene, and he's going to speak to everybody. And everything in your New Testament basically encompasses, encompasses that. And then, of course, in the future, we'll hear a different kind of sound from God. But anyway, I digress. Uh, so foretelling or foretelling, a special divine revelation God gave the prophet to give to the people. John Demarest sums it up. Prophets stood before others declaring the will of the master. So we have this prophetic history. Jesus will underscore their role. Listen to one reference in Luke chapter 10. There are many, but this is one. Turning to the disciples, this is Luke 10, 24. He said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you, many prophets and kings wished to see the things you see, and they did not see them. And to hear the things you hear, and they did not hear them. So let's go back to those prophets. Who they were, they were picked. They were unwilling, perhaps a little resistant, but they did comply. They did obey. They gave a message they were told to give by God, and precious few saw any results except for the example, let's say, of Jonah, who saw great results but didn't like the outcome. Most of them were talking about something that was going to happen way past their lifetime. So it's one thing to say, you know, I can read a verse of Scripture, share with somebody who maybe does or doesn't know Christ. We can talk about it. But to say, I'm going to tell you something's going to happen in the future. God told me there's going to be a new kingdom. God told me a Savior's going to come. God told me, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. These plagues are going to come. And think of how people are going to respond. And then for the prophets like Isaiah, who have these layers of prophetic information that applied at the time, but there was also a future application, to think why they were mocked and ridiculed and abused. People thought they were crazy. They thought they were crazy. And I love the author of Hebrews' line, men of whom the world was not worthy. They did what God asked them to do. No holes barred. Yes, some reluctance. Yes, some resistance. But Jesus will underscore They wanted to see these things. God talked to them. They heard this message. They died without seeing what you are seeing now. Now, don't miss Peter's connection. He's saying the prophets prophesied of the grace that would come to you. So in their search, what Peter is sewing together in his picture of salvation is they weren't just looking to corroborate the message they heard or to maybe hear a fragment of what Jeremiah or what the psalmist may have said about the future They were looking for this grace, which is pretty counter to the way we typically think of the Old Testament. We think of the Old Testament as law, and grace is going to come in the future. But Peter says that these prophets were uh, prophesying a grace that would come to you. Notice the second person plural pronoun, to you. It's personal, to you. Not just Peter's audience, but to you and me as we read it today. That these prophets prophesied that a grace was going to come. Do you remember when that grace came to you, knocked on your door? I vividly remember it. I remember how it turned my life upside down. I didn't walk an aisle and pray a prayer. But when I understood that salvation was, and that it was by trust, by faith, not what I do, what he did, not by works of the law that no man can boast. When I first 
was exposed to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and Galatians 2, 20, and a score of other verses, it was like an explosion of information going off in my head and my heart going, I can't believe this. You mean, I don't have to do all these things for a long shot chance? It's not like a lottery ticket. Maybe, maybe I'll get in the gate. You can know for sure. And when that grace comes to you, and then for many people, the next feeling is, how utterly unworthy am I? to have been given this grace. Because we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, we can't gain it, we can't lose it, we can't keep it. He gives it. And it's based on his word, on his promise, not on what we do. The definition of the message comes out of the core that salvation in Peter's doxology is by grace, which should be no surprise to us, but the way his doxology unfolds is interesting. What he starts out in this little section is saying, prophetic history is important Because those men who wrote those words and made those prophecies anticipated this coming grace. They didn't get to see it, but you have not only seen it, it's in your past. It was in their future, but it was in their past. Secondly, from prophetic history, the prophets were perplexed. So we have prophetic perplexity, verse 11, seeing to know, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The Messianic problems created a problem. Because as they search and make inquiry, there's this thing Jesus is going to suffer. The idea of Messianic suffering was pretty far removed from the pious Jew. Now, you and I as believers, and if you've been around the book a little bit, you know in Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, other passages we point to about the suffering servant. When you read Isaiah 53 over against the crucifixion account, it's like mind-numbing. I mean, this was minimum 700-plus years, maybe 1,400-plus years before the time Christ walks the planet. And the description of what happens to him is is like line by line, verb by verb. And this is the suffering Messiah that, of course, the Jew had a hard time with God cursing Messiah. And that that was a showstopper for many of the Jews. I can't believe in that Jesus as the Messiah because God wouldn't curse his own son on a tree. He wouldn't let him be killed. You can't kill Messiah would be their thinking, which in a way we understand. But the idea of a suffering servant as a Messiah was a hard turn for most of the pious Jews of the day. Now, their perplexity is what person or time the Spirit of Christ is. In other words, they knew Christ was coming. They just didn't know who he was or when he would come. Years ago on one of my trips to Israel, um, it's sort of interesting because sometimes the locals, they they call us missionaries or pilgrims. They have certain names that are a little derogatory for us, be that as may. But um, I, I try to just strike up a conversation and, you know, just see what they believe and where they are. And this one rabbi I talked to one time, and he was, um, let's, just, let's just say he was very energetic, kind of charismatic personality. And he was showing me what we would call like a tract or a pamphlet of this rabbi. And long story short, he was convinced he was Messiah. And I said, well, how do you know he's Messiah? And he said, well, he is. He just hasn't revealed himself yet. And this isn't a predominant teaching in Judaism, but it is a teaching in certain Judaism sects where they believe that the Messiah is here, he just hasn't revealed himself yet. And we're waiting for him to reveal himself. So all the tangents, just as illustration, why these things happen is that like, we know he's coming, we don't know who he is, now we've got this suffering dilemma in here. He's talking to a group of people who are dispersed, who are suffering and being persecuted for the sake of Christ. He's reminding them, let's go back to the beginning. We didn't know who he was or when he was coming, and when he came, he suffered. So implication, why should we be surprised is where, of course, it's going to go. They foresaw the Christ, but they didn't see Jesus. Now, his lineage is disputed when he comes on the scene. His political view is disputed. His social view is disputed. He doesn't come to the religious authority of the day. Scribes, Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they want nothing to do with him in in most part. There are a few exceptions. But as a group, he doesn't come to them and say, hey, I'm going to go through the rabbinic school and be one of you guys. Rather, he comes as a a worker with hands. Um, We use the word carpenter a lot. Probably not the best word. Probably a stonemason is really what it probably meant. Because number one, there wasn't a lot of, isn't a lot of wood in Israel, but there's a lot of stone. And the temple complexes and houses were all built out of stone, not wood. 
The manger's stone, by the way. When you go to Israel, we'll show you one. It's a stone manger, not a wood box. Animals would destroy a wood box. Everyone knows that. So it may have been Jesus was a stonemason, not a carpenter with a saw and a pencil behind his ear. This Messiah is going to come, and as a worker with his hands in a trade, at 30-some years of age, going to leave his family of origin and embark uh, in the Sea of Galilee and handpick 12 misfits and basically start a cult. If you're the religious leader of the day, if you're a Sanhedrin, scribe, Pharisee, you got the regalia, you're the position of honor, you're a rabbi, who's this guy walking around the lake with a bunch of ragtag fishermen and, and tax collectors and whatnot? And we'd call it a cult today. So he comes and breaks all the social norms. He breaks the religious norms. And when he shows up, Judaism is confronted because of all the embellishment of the law, which was not part of God's intent. The Jews bore no resemblance to this Jesus. They looked at him and said, he can't be the Messiah. Well, Peter identifies the spirit of Christ within them. It's an interesting phrase. The spirit of Christ is, of course, a synonym for the Holy Spirit. No different. Uh, The Spirit of Christ is within them. Notice they're making careful search. They're making inquiries on this. They're looking for this grace. And then he writes, was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Both the words sufferings and glories are plural, you BSF precept study guys. It's a very important note. So we're starting to see this picture of salvation sewn more together in Peter's theology. We didn't know who he was. We didn't know when he was coming. We're starting to piece it together. The second part of verse 11, he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Um, This is a prophetic explanation. Now, the prophets of old said things in layers that we don't know if they completely understood what they were writing. I I can't tell you that bulldogmatically. I can tell you New Testament looking back, we do, right? Right? So we read Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, uh, Psalm 110, a royal psalm, inaugural Psalm 101. We get the idea that's talking about Christ. At the time, they were talking about a future Messiah. But now we've got a past event we're looking back on. But this suffering and glory part is still a head-scratcher for people. If you read the Gospel of John, Jesus is very clear that he must suffer before he can be glorified. It was still a hard message for most of them to understand. If we think about, uh, and you've seen this illustration perhaps in many different ways, you think about a person standing over here and there's a mountain and a valley and a bigger mountain. And if you're looking from here to the larger mountain, you don't see this valley in between. We sometimes call it a false peak when you're climbing. You think you're going to the top, all of a sudden you get up, oh no, i got to go way down there, way back up again. And we often talk about Old Testament prophets, they saw the tops, but they didn't see what was in between. They didn't see the exiles, perhaps. They didn't see the destruction of the temple, perhaps. So when you think about a prophet given revelation by God, he may not have had all the pieces together. We as New Testament readers, we see everything now. We look back, oh, this is what Isaiah and Jeremiah refer to. This was what the suffering servant was about. This is about the one no bones were broken in the burial process. And it starts to add up for the New Testament prophet for the apostles who write these things, and then, of course, for us as the readers. It's a clear major theme from John's gospel. It's a clear theme here in Peter's letter, but it's still hard for many to accept why would Messiah have to suffer. Um, I think Peter is very intentional here that he knows his, his friends are in trouble and they're suffering. And so he speaks his doxology in such a way to say, why do you think this is unique, for example? Um, in 1990, Cindy and I were, uh, her dad gave us a beautiful 10, 10 year anniversary gift and sent us to Germany. And uh, uh, we did this tour, the, the Zell MC, Amman Sea, uh, Germany, Austria. And part of the tour was to see the Oberammergau play. And uh, if you don't know what that is, that is the original Passion Play in 1634. And um, it's held on the decade, essentially. For a long time. They used to do it every year and it about killed the community, so they went to it every decade. So every 10 years they hold it. So 1990, we got to go. And it's, it is a, uh, it's an eight hour passion play in German. Think about this a Jewish story of a Jewish Messiah in German. 
in this amphitheater for eight hours. It used to be two and three days, but they shrunk it to eight hours. The pyrotechnics are all done by hand. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. Well, we're on this tour with a brilliant PhD with a degree from an Ivy League religion department who went on to be a president of a university. Brilliant man. Sitting and I are, we're like the youngest couple on this tour. And um, I'm just a sponge asking questions of this guy the whole time. He's very kind to me. Well, we go to Obram, we got to watch Passion Play. There's a couple on the tour beside us during the mocking and crucifixion. They are sobbing uncontrollably. I mean, they're just heaving and sobbing and wiping their tears and, you know, under their glasses and just, I mean, out of control. And Cindy and I are kind of, we're crying a little bit. And, and here's this guy who's this, you know, highbrow, esteemed, brilliant PhD guy who's just stone stoic. Just watching it. No emotion whatsoever. That's okay. So afterwards, we're walking and, um, I'm asking him lots of questions. And I, I said, what do you think of the passion of the Christ? And not verbatim, but pretty close what he said to me is, I have no comprehension for why God would become a man, die, and that substitutionary atonement would somehow affect other people's sins. And it struck me, you can be brilliant and miss it. You can be brilliant and a religion major and miss it. And of course, I knew everything, so I tried to argue with him, which was very successful. <laughs> Just right, right away, he turns, oh, you're right, I'm wrong. Yeah, <laughs> huh. yeah hardly. Uh, I learned a, message, uh, a lesson in bad apologetics is what I learned a message in. But the, the reason I tell the story is the idea, he was saying, why would suffering bring benefit? Peter is saying, apart from the sufferings of Jesus Christ, plural, there will be no glories. This is why the Trinitarian doctrine to me is so genius and beautiful and amazing because we have to have God the Father send the God-man Son who is capable of being killed, capable of dying and being resurrected. And we have to have the Spirit who then indwells the believer to have the whole package. You cannot be saved apart from a Trinitarian doctrine. So people that are modalists and who deny the Trinity, I mean, they might be Christians that are very confused, but they're doing damage to the Scripture. I want to be clear on salvation and sanctification of all things. Let's be clear on how this happens and what it means so that we can know to examine ourselves to see that we're in the faith, right? So the author, Peter here, is explaining to them, you're suffering, and from those sufferings, Christ had glorifications. And I can almost see him like winking when he's writing, going, and that's what's going to happen to you. When you suffer for Christ's sake, you and I may never know on the horizontal realm why. But in glory, upon glory, we will see it completely differently. I've shared with you many times, I don't ask why, I just ask how. Because why questions just, they don't help me. Even if I got an answer, so what? I deserve hell. Why? If he allows anything in my life, why should I ask him why? I ask him how do I respond, how do I live, what do I do, but I don't ask why. Because suffering in this realm is somehow turned into plurate glories in the next. Think of some of the glories before he ascends. We have resurrection. We have witnesses who see him. He walks through walls. He breaks bread. He eats meals with his friends. He encourages them. He walks along the road to Emmaus and, and schools a couple of disciples. He does a lot of things that aren't recorded. And then, of course, he is ascended. And then he seats at the, is seated at the right hand of the Father eternally. And all the glories that then begin to add up, just the little piece we can, I mean, can't measure how small it is compared to what the ultimate glories are when we see him face to face. The prophetic history, the prophetic perplexity, why does he suffer? And then we have the prophetic clarity, verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The prophets look forward to an unknown future. Peter and the, the group of apostles look back to a known fact. It's quite a fulcrum. They look all this salvation history. I mean, your Old Testament, let's just use it as a simple shape, a lot bigger than the new. A lot more looking forward to what was going to happen, and now it's happened, and we're looking back. They had more evidence than their 
prophet friends, as we read in Hebrews, as Jesus talks about kings and prophets who long to see the things you see and hear, and, they, and you're seeing and hearing them. We would, in our world, we'd say, I'd die to see that. I'd give anything to hear that. And they did. They died, and they didn't see it, and nor did they hear it. But the apostles and those since have some eyewitnessed, and some certainly from then on have heard of the message that the prophets of old did not completely understand. Well, this prophetic clarity comes as they look back and look forward. The understanding is going to grow. Now, to me, this, the idea of this is tandem with how we look at the Scripture as the authority of God and how we understand the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Uh, back to this nomenclature, a lot of us have heard or maybe used the phrase, God told me, the Holy Spirit showed me, the Holy Spirit revealed something to me, Jesus told me to do X or Y. I've had um, countless conversations with people that have made life-changing decisions because God's told them something. And I'm not here to demean what they say or argue with it. It's just interesting when you say, God told me to do X and Y. And then we have the algorithm of well, when, when it goes bad, what do you do? And typically what we do because we're creative people is we say, well, God had to take me over here to teach me this thing so I could go over there. Well, that sounds convenient to me, but uh, I don't buy it. Uh, but what is the Holy Spirit telling? How is the Holy Spirit teaching? And to me, this is a, it's a wonderful tandem that Peter's giving an insight on. The word's authoritative. It is, has authority. God spoke it just as though a prophet said it. Sometimes reluctantly, but he did what God told him to do. The, the authority that the scripture has is because it's God's word. It is true because it's God's word. It's not God's word, therefore it's true. God spoke it. So in the, in the, in the fiat, in the speaking to the prophets, in the declaring creation, it is truth. He is truth. So this is the authority. This is his word. A preacher that I grew up under in college said this is the mind of God in print. I like that. This is the mind of God in print. You know what God thinks? Read the Word. You want to know his opinion on that? Read the Word. This is the mind of God in print. Now, we have trouble with it. So the Holy Spirit is called a teacher, a paraclete, one who comes alongside, one who helps us. And we can take that Word and we can understand it in certain ways. When the Holy Spirit tells Paul something, is he telling you and me something the same way? And I would say yes and no. I would say no, he's not speaking to us as he did prophets and apostles, but he's speaking to us through his word. Where the Holy Spirit, I believe, comes in along the lines of 1 Corinthians and other passages is that he gives value and meaning to this word that we did not have before we knew Christ. I meant to bring the book off my shelf and left it at home. Uh, Umberto Casuto is an Italian rabbi. He's, he's long since deceased. He wrote a, uh, a volume on the first 12 chapters of, actually the first six chapters of Genesis. There's two volume, 12 set, but his students did the rest because he died. He was one of the most revered rabbis, one of the most brilliant Hebrew scholars. And his uh, first six chapters on Genesis are without equal. He sees things in the Hebrew texts that the best rabbinic scholars missed. He sees arrangements and chiasms and devices from a literary standpoint that make the point of who God is. His work on chapter 1 and 2 of the book of Genesis, it's very academic, are mind-blowing. They're unequaled. He was an Einstein of Genesis 1 and 2, let's put it that way. He didn't believe any of it. Just because he's brilliant didn't mean he grasped it. So here's a man who could sight-read the Old Testament, which is no small accomplishment in antiquity or today, better than anybody, let's say, for argument's sake, and didn't believe it. When you come to Christ, when I came to Christ, I'm reading something and go, that's what this means? Because this now has value to me. God's Spirit lives in and dwells in us in the obedient, faithful person who's continually exposing himself to the mind of God in print. Things are going to come across your radar and go, that's what that means? Oh, my, I never saw that before. That's the best part of a, anybody who's done Bible study. If you're in a routine of any kind or doing a fill-in-the-blank book, is when you have those aha discoveries. That, that's the gold. That's you know, panning for gold. And all of a sudden, you find this nugget. And you've got to tell somebody, you don't believe I just read. And they go, oh, I knew that. <laughs> Killjoy, right? You know, I knew that a long time ago. But those discoveries are like, Wow. You see, we could read it before like Umberto Casuto or like my friend, the PhD, and miss it all. Which is kind of cool because you don't have to be an academic to know God. 
You don't have to read Greek or Hebrew to know God. You don't have to be a rabbi or a PhD or a scholar. You can be a fisherman or a woodworker, a tax collector, an accountant, a nurse, a doctor, a teacher. You don't have to be somebody special. He calls you. He chooses you. He gives you that grace as the means by which we're saved. We respond by faith. We respond by trust. We respond by believing in him. His word's authoritative. His spirit comes along. And when you, he's not telling us what to do in the sense of, should I marry this person or that person? Should I move to Sheboygan? I mean, you know, he's not filling those blanks in. Now, you might get some inclination and some leading and guiding. I'm not trying to be disparaging. I don't think that's the Holy Spirit's ministry. His ministry is to help you understand, put value to what is there that you and I couldn't see before we knew Christ. It's just a book. It's a piece of literature. But now we see it as the living word of God that cuts between heart, bone, uh, joint, and marrow, between thought and mind, heart and intention. Well, um, those who preach the gospel to you, uh, this is an interesting phrase. Um, Peter is saying, this is the word euangelizo, euangelizo, where we gloss in English evangelism. And so the Holy Spirit is sent from heaven to euangelizo, communicate the gospel. Peter's probably referencing Acts chapter 2. And when the Spirit came at the so-called day of Pentecost and the church is born, and that's when the believer, the, the masses of ethnicity, there's some 13 dialects in, uh, in Acts chapter 2 that are listed. Parthians, Scythians, Medes, all these different people groups. And the Holy Spirit comes and they're hearing each other in his own language. Just a little detail point there, because some of us have different backgrounds on tongues and whatnot. Um, everybody misses this. They're hearing others in their own language. So if I'm of German heritage and you're Italian, and you're Italian, you're speaking to me in Italian, I'm hearing it in German. That's what was happening at Pentecost. Read it for yourself when you go home tonight. Thirteen different dialectos, and each of them hearing one another in their own language. So when the Spirit was poured out and they spoke with other tongues as Joel had prophesied, it all came true. So Peter's referencing, I would argue, that the Holy Spirit came from heaven and this euangelizo, this divine communication from the divine Spirit, from the divine realm of heaven, all come together. And then we have this cryptic phrase, things into which angels long to look. Isn't that a great phrase? You know, the angels are sitting over there. Here are these super celestial beings. They're not humanoids. They're not, they're not E.T. They're not some Area 51 android or whatever, you know, alien. They're super celestial beings who were, in a sense, above man, but not equal to man. They're more powerful. They're dispatched at his pleasure. They do things that are in the principalities, the dominions, the thrones, the ruling areas that we can't see in this world. That goes on in a different place. But Peter has this little cryptic phrase, things into which angels long to look. It, Dante, has, you know, artists have done pictures of angels, Satan brooding, and they're just looking at mankind and God going, how is this happening? What's going on? You can do worse studies on this long to look. It just means they're looking at something intently. It doesn't expose any deep secret. Wayne Grudem writes, Through the, though the world may think such Christians insignificant and worthy of pity or scorn, angels who see ultimate reality from God's perspective find them to be objects of intense interest. For they know that these struggling believers are actually the recipients of God's greatest blessing and their honored participants in the great drama at a focal point of history. We, too, may rightly think of our Christian lives as no less privileged and no less interesting to a holy angel than those of Peter's readers. Someone was sharing with Cindy and me that their uh, child had come to know Christ recently and um, the parent was telling him that the angels were rejoicing. And I may get the story a little messed up, but they were rejoicing and happy. And the next night, the, the child said, are they, are they still rejoicing? <laughs> are they still rejoicing? You know, and it was like, this sounds pretty cool. And then I, it was maybe the next night or night after, they wanted to go to heaven to see the angels rejoicing. How that mind works. How that child's mind works. But it's a good picture. When you came to Christ, angels wheeled back. They covered their mouths 
whatever they do. And they look intently at the salvation thing that you and I have that they can't get close to. God's prophets in antiquity announced a grace that would come. They didn't know who, they didn't know when, but they knew a Messiah would come. They proclaimed a divine message out of obedience to God. The Christ is coming. He's going to suffer but be glorified, which was a head-scratcher for many then and even today. The New Testament authors have the advantage of seeing the whole picture. They can look backwards to the event of Christ, backwards to the prophecies of the past. They can sew it all together and explain salvation in simple ways that were a little complicated for the Jew. And the Holy Spirit comes as the agency. Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Having also believed, you were sealed. My favorite Greek word in the in Testament, sphragizo, sphragizo. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession for the praise of his glory. This will, this estate was sealed with an attorney's device, with signatures, with notaries, uh, put in a, in a, so a special box locked up in a, in a box, and it can only be broken by those who have the key. Your salvation, the moment you trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit, not some wax seal or some saran wrap or rope or whatever case, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. Peter's saying a similar thing about the salvation. Paul puts the icing on the cake to say you're sealed with the Holy Spirit from the day of redemption. It's a promise. God's word to the prophets was true. God's word to the apostles was true. Uh, you and I are reading this. Lesson number one is please, you know, I know you don't, but I have to remind myself, this is just not a book. It's just not a book. It's the living word of God. It's active, as sharp as a two-edged sword. I think one of the reasons we have trouble reading it is it, because it cuts us sometimes. And we don't like conviction and questions and confusion. We want a happy, horizontal Christian life where God blesses my plans my way. Um, Where did we ever get the idea life was going to work out a certain way? I talked to a number of friends my age asking that question. Where did we ever get the idea life was going to work out a certain way? And why are we surprised when it doesn't work out the way we thought it was supposed to work out when we got that idea out of thin air. His word is active. His word is true. And here to me is the caveat. The prophets knew that they were not serving themselves. That to me is the difference here. Because horizontal Christianity is me, my, I. What Jesus does for me. He loves me. He forgives me. He helps me. He's going to make me prosperous. And bless my children. Bless my grandchildren. Bless my business. Bless my investments. Bless my health. And when I get enough of all that together, I get to travel. And I really do well. I'm going to have a veranda somewhere and a ranch somewhere and a, another house somewhere. And a, maybe, maybe not so fortunate I'll have a friend that has one I can use. But, you know, we have this little trajectory of how it's all going to work out. And our grandchildren are going to come to us. We're going to be the favorite grandparents. And, you know, we, we paint this great picture. Um, I'm not saying God doesn't bless. Do not hear me say that. That's a horizontal view of our Christianity. The prophets were not serving themselves. So Peter's writing to an audience that's suffering, that's dispersed, that's persecuted for their faith. If there's a lesson for you and me, is can you turn that horizontal view of the way you and I think our life should work out and say, wait a minute, this isn't for me. This is for somebody else. And yes, that can be sharing Christ with your kids and grandkids. And yes, that can be sharing Christ with others who don't know him. And yes, that's lifting your head up and looking behind the horizon going, wow, there's a bigger purpose for me. Those are hard words for some of us. Because we get in our ruts. And we like our I love my rut. I really do. I love my routine. I don't like to get outside of it too often. You know the definition of a rut, right? A grave with both ends kicked out. <laughs> to get out of that theological rut and say, this is not about me. The prophets didn't come for me. They came for others. Now, if you and I received that message, what's the, it's a no-brainer, right? You and I are supposed to be about others. And that changes your worldview very quickly. My experience is the more... Cindy and I are concerned about others, 
the better our life goes. It's a corollary. And the more we're fixated on ourselves, the more stuff we have to navigate. Because when it's about somebody else, it puts things in perspective. I went to see my physician today. I had a little carpal tunnel surgery done, a hangnail, and um, nothing to it. And I went for my follow-up. And uh, I found out just a couple weeks ago his wife had brain cancer. And she, was, uh, and she died uh, three weeks ago. So I'm going for a follow-up from the time he did the surgery to when she died, and now I'm seeing him. I know a little bit of his story. He's a great surgeon. He's a dear man. Don't know where he is. But, um, and after he looked at me and we talked for a few minutes, I asked him questions, and he checked, checked me off. I said, I, I know it's a little maybe indelicate as a patient to a physician, but can I ask you how you're doing? And when he had this little conversation, I'm crying. He's not even crying. I'm crying. I said, man, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I know you got two small children. How are they doing? And he said, he's, well, we have, we have good days and bad days. And, and I said, that's got to be hard as a, as a neurosurgeon knowing this stuff. And he goes, when I saw it, I knew it was over. And I knew we could do everything we could, but it was over. 42 years old, she's dead. And... Um, I said, can I, can I pray for you and your kids? He goes, I'd appreciate that. And I walked out of there, not thinking about my hand. A 42-year-old man with two kids who's four and a half months from diagnosis to death. Boom. Kind of forget some other little hangnails in life, don't we? Now, that's illustrative of your sphere. Where can you get out? Where can you lift your head up a little bit? Who do you know that needs a Savior? And it doesn't have to be that hard. It doesn't have to be threatening. It's just as simple as asking some questions. How are you doing? What's going on in your life? What do you think? What do you believe? In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.